Americans love healthcare. I mean, like, absolutely love it. As a matter of fact, going to the doctor is a euphemism for doing something really fun and cool. And obviously, I'm kidding. Healthcare in America, it feels like more than ever, is a massive mess filled with red tape and bills so overblown you'd think that they were in the Oval Office. And that's added on to the tedium, long waits, and oftentimes being told things you already knew, or having a suddenly terrifying and expensive diagnosis dropped on you from out of nowhere. But is all of this because we just don't understand how medicine works? I mean, has it always been like this? Or are we just as fucked as we think we are? All this on this episode of Why Are You Talking About This? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Why Aren't You Talking About This? I will be your wrong degree having guide through the American medical system today and also be explaining why the AMA are a bunch of bastards. Uh, that'll be less offensive in a bit, but until then, it means the world to have my voice echoing through your ears as you test to see if your tinnitus has gotten serious enough to go to the doctors yet. And the answer is yes. Yes, it is. Make sure to continue to stream, like, share, download, and spread the show in any other way you can. We're moving really quickly towards the one-year anniversary of the show, and, uh, <laughs> holy shit, that really does feel way too close for comfort. Uh, also, make sure to send in emails for that 20th episode when I go through my past episodes and talk about places where I fucked up, got things wrong, and read your emails for some insights. Uh, not just into where I got wrong, but also for some more information that people who know ten times more than I do can provide. Oh, and I am also thinking about things to add to the show for next year, so I mean, if you have any ideas, please uh, send that in the email as well. I'm already looking at maybe doing a Patreon or doing some videos, but I'm, I'm not sure yet. Uh, with that, let's get on to the show. So, we're talking medicine today. And while that sounds like a very big topic, and trust me, it is, and you can look at the uh, time of the episode, we're mostly going to be focusing on medical systems today. So, while we're going to cover stuff like the history of medical care, we aren't going to go too crazy. But to start, we should first describe the kinds of medicine we have nowadays. And modern medicine can be broken into three types, being allopathic, osteopathic, and alternative. So allopathic medicine is a system of medical care, medications, and treatment 
that rely on and are backed up by clinical examination, diagnosis, and the defining of and search for signs and symptoms before a treatment is performed. And this is the dominant system you see in America especially, and is what we would call Western medicine. Allopathy is also highly specialized with 24 different specialties that, for the fucking life of me, I couldn't find listed in their entirety, but includes things like immunology, anesthesiology, internal medicine, genetics, neurology, and nuclear medicine, which is like nucleus, not like uh, uh, the fucking radiation, OBGYNs, uh, emergency medicine, family medicine, preventative medicine, radiology, and surgical medicine. Now, if you want to know what the other 12 are, good luck finding them, and you're probably either going to have to talk to a doctor or you already are one, in which case, email the show, please. Um, I assume also some of these would include stuff like bone medicine, foot medicine, boner medicine, and maybe like pharmaceuticals, but I'm not going to guess 12 fields of medicine to pull out my ass like I'm an asshole doctor. Okay, so the benefits of allopathic medicine is that it is really good quality treatment and is extremely reliable and effective because it's been tested scientifically literally billions of times a day. I mean, it also has the most advanced diagnostic tools and receives a ton of research and technological focus and has very easy access to the highest levels of funding available to anything in medicine. So it's an absolute juggernaut as far as treating and curing illness, injury, and disease is concerned. However, there are also problems. Because sure, it fixes what's medically wrong, allopathic medicine is very, very focused. I mean, each specialty is highly focused on their own field, and because they're scientists and also doctors that took an oath to not hurt you too bad, they're not going to risk hurting you even more and also being wrong and getting bullied at the next super secret doctor meeting and will instead send you to someone else that can treat you better. And this field also doesn't necessarily address underlying issues, putting that instead on you. Yeah, like for example, if you keep breaking your arm, an allopathic doctor will fix it and tell you, hey, maybe don't bash it with a goddamn hammer next time, okay? But they aren't going to take the hammer out of your hand. Because that isn't their focus. The bone doctor fixes bones. It's not that they don't give a shit about you. It's that they don't know why you're bashing your arm with a hammer every two years to the exact second. And it's not within their knowledge base to fix that. Now, also this field of medicine, because each one of its healing options has the power of blessed Allah's left testicle they have higher odds of unexpected side effects. And because they're already powerful, and also, yes, your mom was right, and you're a special little snowflake, and your DNA is entirely different from any other humans, the odds that your specific biochemistry doesn't mix right is pretty fucking high. Added on to that is when allopathy fucks up, it fucks up bad. Like, sure, with the laser beam that makes cells through the funny disintegration beam scream is hitting the cancer, it's all cool, but if someone fucks up, suddenly you're getting a laser beam meant to turn DNA into WRNA directly to your very juicy, not laser-proof organs. Or for an easier example, uh, if your surgeon says, whoops, 
best case scenario, they're going to open you back up again in about two weeks to pull out his wedding ring. Okay, so if that's too horrifying for you, we also have osteopathic medicine. Now, unlike alternative medicine, you know, something that a lot of people think that this is, you can get real degrees in osteopathic medicine that, you know, actually make you a doctor. And if you're offended, go lick a rodentite shaped like my weird, sharp, red, pink cock and swallow some essential oils. But this philosophy of medicine is focused on a whole person approach and overall wellness. DOs are just as well trained as an allopath, and oftentimes there's a lot of respect between the two professions. Osteopaths are focused on four tenets, those being, first, the body is a unit, and the person is a unit of mind, body, and spirit. Second, the body is capable of self-regulation, self-healing, and maintenance. Third, structure and function are reciprocally interrelated. And fourth, rational treatment is based upon understanding these principles. Which, weirdly enough, these four tenets are actually pretty close to all my weirdo witchcraft shit. Which, I think, says more positive things about my ideas than it does bad things about osteopaths. But an osteopath's focus is on the relationship between the body's structures and its functions and deals in hands-on methodology of treatment with a whole-body approach, often approaching it like a conversation between doctor and patient. Now, on the good side, this methodology is really personal. Like, your doctor gets to know you a lot better than an allopath, and if you need a full rework of your entire lifestyle because the shit you're dealing with is caused by a lifetime of bad habits and health issues, they're your people. You know, with stuff like obesity that you want to address, allopaths can obviously help with that, but osteopaths would probably be better at it. Now, it's also less dangerous, and it being more general means you can visit an osteopath to receive really fast and effective treatment for things like aches and pains that aren't really attached to major health issues. Now, the downsides of osteopathy are that because it's not very popular, most people don't know about it, meaning it has less power and less funding opportunities. And because it's focused on patient well-being and a personalized approach, there's a lot less research into it and the tools and techniques used doesn't have the same highly empirical system of research and science allopathy does. But this also doesn't mean that it's less effective or that they aren't scientists in their own way. I want to get that across to you. Osteopathy and allopathy are both effective, evidence-based medicine. Just allopathy, by virtue of treating medicine as a strict science instead of a philosophy, tends to have more of a factual, empirical basis behind it. And also, again, if I've offended an osteopath, please send me an email. I will correct it in the next episode. Uh, also, all of this reminds me, alternative medicine. And this umbrella covers a vast field of pseudoscience, spiritual beliefs, repackages medicine to get white middle-aged blonde women in American suburbia pogging their fucking jaws off, traditional and folk medicine, and shit made up by crazy white people in the mid-1800s that now other crazy white people in the 2000s think is fucking genius. Now, alternative medicine runs the gambit of ineffective but still having grains of truth, like herbalism and traditional Chinese medicine, which 
PCM, I understand, has issues that we're not going to cover here, but there's parts of it that does work, so don't get mad at me and tell me about the racism and the unsustainability and the poaching and all the fucking... I, I fucking know. All the way to things most people don't use anymore, like the humor system. Uh, all the way to the really fucking stupid, like, testicle tanning to become a more manly man. You know, fellas, it's gay to have a pale taint. To homeopathy. And just because I know it'll piss people off who practice it, what is homeopathy? Well, it's a quote-unquote system of medicine that treats like with like. The idea is that there's some essential features of compounds, so when administered in a healthy person, causes symptoms. When given to someone with those symptoms already, cures them. Oh, and also the higher the dilution of water, the more powerful and effective the treatment, which, no, that's not how that works. That's not how reality works. But their idea is that the ephemeral essential feature gets spread into the water, which... No, that's not how reality fucking works. And I'm not... There's no There's no pros and cons, because it's not real. But, I guess, if you wanted to stretch it, the pro is that you feel special and natural, but the cons are that it's expensive as shit, and also nature is one of the most brutal and sadistic motherfuckers in the planet, and God damn am I in love with her. Uh, my own taste in women and horrifyingly powerful semi-eldritch entities only playing along with us, thinking we've conquered them, that should probably land me in some kind of behavioral therapy aside. What is the actual system of healthcare now that we know the kinds of medicine? Well, the healthcare system is the name for the entire apparatus of applying medicine. So the system is designed to prevent, diagnose, treat, alleviate, and or cure disease, illness, injury, impairment, and in some fields, death its fucking self. I mean, the entire system and apparatus is a complex alliance of different health professions, including medical doctors, dentists, pharmacists, midwives, nurses, optometrists, psychologists, audiologists, occupational physical therapists, athletic therapists and trainers, EMTs, and other support professionals. Whoa! Holy shit. And this group, if I can be poetic for a moment and use my degree, are essentially an alliance of warriors fighting death, disease, pain, and human suffering on the front lines, using their combined skills and tactics to save as many human lives as possible for as long as possible. But how this is done is broken down into five levels of care. The first is primary care, being the first point of contact for patients in the healthcare system. This would include healthcare warriors like family doctors, therapists, nurse practitioners, and some forms of healthcare systems, particularly in places like Korea and Latin America, to name some examples off the top of my head, uh, would be nurses and pharmacists. This also includes urgent care healthcare workers that provide same-day services for acute issues like being alarmingly ill or having a major but not life-threatening injury. This line of defense also addresses things like asthma, diabetes, depression, anxiety, aches and pains, common dysfunctions like thyroid dysfunction, uh, vaccinations, and family planning like birth control, plan B, and if you're capable of connecting more than two dots with your little green crayola there, abortions. And basically, primary care health care is where you go when shit happens in life or you have things to have a doctor look at. 
your primary care doctor being the person you see consistently is also part of the system. You know, the one that's probably seen your wonky balls and didn't laugh until you were out of the room. They absolutely laugh at your wonky balls, by the way. Now, if they need reinforcements, this is where the secondary care comes in. They cover serious injuries, illnesses, and acute life-threatening conditions. Most commonly would be like emergency rooms and emergency room healthcare workers. You know, the people that you see in medical dramas, uh, two-point font medical and 85-point dramas, screaming about CCs and also, doctor, please stop fingering the nurse. This man's been shot and he's anemic and also allergic to the color white and also the entire field of medicine. Now, this isn't all a bunch of emergency room excitement. Uh, this also includes highly skilled and specialized professionals like medical imagers, intensive care providers, and midwives and childbirth specialists. Uh, also, like dental specialists and psychiatrists. But this field is usually referred to as hospital care because I mean, most of these guys hang out of hospitals patrolling the hallways on the lookout for grim reapers to beat with a barbed wire bat and bike chains. This is also where you get the specialized therapists, like speech, physical, respiratory, and occupational ther therapists, and dietitians or sleep specialists, like the ones that you need a referral for. And these ones are, and these professions are usually, again, like I said, on referral, and aren't actively looking for patients, or are set up in hospitals or private offices that you can't just walk into. So tertiary care is when shit gets real. These are the professionals you call in when you need specialist consultation or referral from healthcare providers. This would include medical investigators, uh, cancer specialists, surgical specialists like neurosurgeons and cardiac surgeons, cosmetic surgeons, newborn care, and really complex medical interventions like things that require a lot of different kinds of doctor. So... If you go to your normal doctor and he takes a look at your funky, funky nutsack and then refers you to someone who then refers you to someone else, time to start getting worried. You've just hit the level of healthcare that our two doctors, as doctors, are to us. Uh, palliative care is also included here, being a form of medical care where it's now or hospice and would include further stages of cancer or heart failure where the point is to relieve your symptoms and make you comfortable, but you aren't guaranteed to die. So, yeah, get worried about those funky fucking balls. Quaternary care is extremely advanced levels or highly experimental medicine, which includes diagnostics and surgical procedures that are very rarely used. It might be things even doctors don't know about. And these are extremely expensive and also hard to access because you basically need to do this. Go to your primary care doctor because he knows your ball sack is growing a face. Your doctor refers you to a specialist. That specialist has no idea what the fuck they're looking at and refers you to the funky ball sack doctor that has spent more years in medical school than the average person has spent wanting to kill themselves. And then that person has zero clue what the fuck is happening and refers you to the extra funky ball sack doctor, which, if you could piece together, is unlikely to have a specialist at that level be entirely out of their depth. Again, time to panic about your weird JMP. Uh, sorry, JISA manufacturing plant. It's a medical term. You, you wouldn't get it. Okay, but the last level of care is community care. 
which is actually lower down on the specialization tree. See, community care is healthcare done outside of healthcare facilities, which would include food safety, contraceptive and STI protection, uh, needle exchange programs, rehabilitation services, including both drug rehab as well as injury rehab clinics, assisted living and home care, nursing homes, and other social services, as well as you know doctors and scientists fighting things like the obesity epidemic or COVID, um, and also doctors like going overseas and opening up clinics. Uh, th- this is basically all the stuff that you need healthcare workers at 24-7 and can't really afford to skimp out on or decentralize. You know, like if uh, primary care workers are your front lines, community care workers are like auxiliary and scout troops. Okay, but with all this in mind, I'm sure you're twisting your comically large capitalist mustache and saying, look, this is all fine and good, but where's the part I can make the poor suffer? And, you know, I gotta say, thank you for listening, Andrew Witte, CEO of United Health Group. Uh, harsh Wilbur Forrest Burns aside, Healthcare is hella expensive, even taking insurance companies out of the equation. So, how do you fund them? Well, the five methods are taxes, national healthcare insurance, private insurance, out-of-pocket payments, and donations. But the thing is, even if I went into depth on those, they wouldn't actually tell us much. So, we need to look at the healthcare matrix to talk about funding. And don't panic, but the X axis of our little matrix here is universal healthcare versus non-universal healthcare. Basically, who has to pay? And this is divided again between single-payer, where someone who isn't the patient pays, multi-payer, where the patient and another party pays, and no insurance, where the patient only pays. And the y-axis is single or multiple providers. Basically, who's in charge of managing the medical facilities? And from this, we get five combinations that exist. So first is the single provider, single payer combo, which is two healthcare models. The beverage and the Samashko models. The beverage model, and uh, okay, it's a British name. It's B-E-V-E-R-I-D-G-E. Beverage? Beverage? I'm not, yeah. Anyways, uh, the Coca-Cola model is that the government pays for healthcare through income tax payments, and the Shamashko model, sorry, I'm not Russian, uh, is that medical care is a portion of the national budget and is therefore essentially free. And under these, you can go to any doctor for any amount of money, and the government will pay for the treatment, and you aren't on the hook for any of it. Second is multiple providers and single payer. This is a national health care insurance plan where there's a big Scrooge McDuck pool of money used to pay for all medicine and treatment in the entire country using a variety of funding mechanisms but leaning on multiple income sources and allows for private medical providers. So instead of the government essentially owning the healthcare system, the healthcare industry sends Daddy Sam a bill when they're done with you. And uh, you, you really thought you escaped Father Samuel, didn't you? All right. Third is multiple provider and multiple universal payers. This is often called the Bismarck system, where people contribute to a national medical fund to pay for healthcare. And while this would be overseen by a governing body, it's not government controlled. Meaning the government tracks the number, and that's basically it. Yeah, this one's a little weird, but 
It was tried out after Germany got punched in the teeth of Versailles, and their entire economy turned into a dog turd smeared into Grandma's white rug. So, give them a little, a little benefit of the doubt. Don't give Germany post World War One a little bit benefit of the doubt. I just don't do that. Don't give them anything. Uh. Fourth is multiple provider and multiple non-universal payers. This is the idea of private health insurance, where private companies create a pool of money for treatments that they pay for by charging their customers essentially a subscription-based premium. And finally, we have multiple provider with no insurance. This is the system of -of out-of-pocket payment, where patients pay for treatment directly from their doctor with a treatment plan laid out between them and the doctor at hand. And that's it. That you just you just pay for the health care that you need directly out of pocket immediately when the treatment is given. Yeah. Okay, and that's basically what we're going to cover in this section. So let's jump on over to the history. And once again, we start at the Stone Age, for real this time. So, during this era, because the concepts of disease and illness didn't really have any explanation, most medicine became very closely tied to rituals and spiritual beliefs that connected healing plants and procedures with spiritual ones. So, early on, religion and medicine were kind of the same thing. And between 10,900 BC and 7,000 BC is when we have the first evidence of the first two dental procedures, the older one occurring in modern-day Italy, and the other occurring in modern Pakistan. And what were these procedures? Uh, honestly, probably tooth pulling. I mean, it's not really like cavemen were walking around with braces or had crowns in. Uh, but, you know, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe they did. Also around 6,000 BC is the first evidence we have of the use of psychoactive plants for medical uses by Neanderthals, which, look, you aren't fooling anyone, Neanderthals. We know why you're vaping hallucinogenic mushrooms. The same reason why people vape THC, because it's fun. Don't make up stuff like, oh, it keeps the brain demons under control, because it fucking doesn't. Just don't be afraid to admit that that you're having fun. Uh, Also around this time is the oldest evidence we have for the practice of trepanation. And what is that, you ask? Oh, nothing much. Just uh, drilling a motherfucking hole in your head. Yeah. And why would they do that? Well, you know, because sometimes you're sad for a while, so you go ask the shaman for help, and he drills a fucking quarter-sized hole in your head to let the sadness demons out. Or, you know, Unga falls and hits his head on a rock, and so to make sure that his brain doesn't swell into his skull and fucking die, you drill a hole in it so that his brain has more room to to, to swell up. Yeah. Oh, and also, uh, we still do that, by the way. In cases of extreme head injuries, they might still drill a hole in your head just to make sure your brain has somewhere to swell that's not, like, crushing your personality against your skull. Also, that's how I want to die, by the way. If someone could uh, wrap their uh, personality around my face until I... Anyways. Uh, Moving on to the ancient world, before you can fully process all of that information I just gave you, uh, we have the ancient Egyptians. And the ancient Egyptians actually had one of the most complex and expansive medical systems of the time, 
and was described by the big, dumb, Greek asshole Herodotus, our old buddy from the first episode, as the healthiest of men. Assuming that means women, too. Uh, not only, well, I mean, maybe not, because uh, the ancient Greeks were, they didn't think women were real. Uh, but not only did the ancient Egyptians have a highly specialized and good public health care system, but they even had doctors that specialized in singular diseases specifically. You know, like, they had, like, a leprosy doctor, but they also had a flu doctor. And yeah, that's not even something we really do today. And to be fair, we don't really need to, but still. Meanwhile, in China, Chinese medicine begins to develop from the empirical observations of Taoist doctor priests. As part of this, they also developed the philosophy that all human experience, including injury and disease, is caused by features of your environment expressing the natural order of the universe. So, oftentimes, an important part of curing an ailment was changing your environment. And sure, this doesn't really help with stuff like congenital heart disease, and it sounds a little more spiritual than we do it today, but when you think about it, it works for a surprising number of things. Cholera? Maybe don't drink the poop water anymore. Cancer? I mean, you're shit out of luck, but we can tell everyone else not to sleep on those weird glowing rocks anymore. Flu? How about you just get the fuck away from everyone for a while? How about that? It's wild that some of those principles still kind of hold true. Uh, But we also get to the Sumerians in the 3rd millennium BC doing things like drug prescriptions, uh, surgery fees, and also medical exorcisms. And keep in mind, this isn't 3000 BC. It's 30,000 BC. How do we know this? Oh, because these are on receipts that were printed onto clay tablets. That's right. This was so common that you'd write a prescription on the ancient equivalent of a piece of paper. And from this, we also know that the most common kinds of medical professionals were also spiritual professionals, being seers, exorcists, and physician priests. And by the 11th century BC, Mesopotamia had developed such a vast amount of medical knowledge that the chief scholar of Babylon, Isaac, oh shit, Isaac Ilkin Apli, man, that was the whitest way I've ever pronounced anything. Uh, also, I'm not going to apologize for the pronunciation, and if you're mad, fuck you, because you don't know either, uh, writes the Diagnostic Handbook, which in addition to sound like the Walmart brand DSM-5, was a very long medical text with every single crumb of medical knowledge you can cram into a book in the 11th century BC. It contained everything from every known symptom to empirical data on treatment, all the way to diagnostic rules and and medical regulations. And 8,000 years later, Imhotep would be credited with creating the foundations of the more modern but still old as shit ancient Egyptian medical system, with a papyrus that included anatomical models, cures, and discussions surrounding disease and ailments. And this was later copied in 1500 BC, according to some sources, and this new version included instructions for examinations and prognosis, or determining outcomes. And it's wild, they still have to wait 1500 years to figure out how to tell someone they only have 8 months to live. What is this, America? And then continuing on to the 4th dynasty of Egypt, which is still old as shit, 
the first Egyptian female doctor. Oh my god. I don't think I'm pronouncing this right. Peseshet? <laughs> the only other way to pronounce that in my brain is pussy shit, which I don't. <laughs> I don't think that's what it is. Um, also, I really hope that's not someone just playing a joke on me. Because, holy shit, they really would have tried hard. Um, but they gained prominence and eventually would become the overseer of all female doctors. Which, the other way to pronounce that name is making it so much funnier. Uh, and about 700 years later, women would get another win. As per the mandated, women can only get a W once every millennia. With the Cahoon Gynecological Papyrus. Yeah written as both the oldest surviving medical instructional text we've ever found in its original form, and also the first that we know of that specifically addresses things like menstruation, childbirth, and women-specific and woman-prone diseases. And 300 years later, turning that W into an L, the Ebers papyrus is written about enemas. Yep, women's health is considered just a touch more important than sticking a tube up your asshole and pressure-washing your colon. Now, I mostly bring this up because I'd be remiss if I did not mention the most coveted medical specialist position in all of ancient Egypt, the Eri, a.k.a. the Shepherd of the Anus, a.k.a. your asshole doctor. I bring this up because I want you to really think about that title. People ran around at some point in human history with the title of Shepherd of the Anus, and their job wasn't fucking people in the butt. And now, really wishing I had a transition to not be blasphemous, we have the origins of Ayurvedic medicine between 1200 and 900 BC. Ooh, yeah, that, that feels blasphemous. And while we didn't cover it earlier, this is still a popular system of medicine today. And while it was forming, and all the way up to the modern day, it has eight branches. Uh, those being internal medicine, surgery and anatomy, ear, ear, eye, nose, and throat, pediatrics and gynecology, spirit and psychiatric medicine, toxicology, rejuvenation, and fertility. And also in the east, but much further east, somewhere between the fifth and third somewhere between the fifth and third centuries BC, the Yellow Emperor's Inner Canon is written, which serves as the foundation of traditional Chinese medicine, which, as we mentioned earlier, is still around today. And within that time frame, we also have the foundations of basically all of Western medicine, as Hippocrates, the big Greek asshole, not a dummy, uh, lived between 460 and 370 BC. And he not only invented the Hippocratic Oath, which is still used today in some form, you know, that doctors have to fight disease and also do no harm, but he also defined a ton of terms and created a lot of illness categories, including the categories of acute, chronic, endemic, and epidemic. And the terms exacerbation, which I'm not going to try to pronounce that any better, relapse, resolution, crisis, paroxysm, peak, and convalescence. So, I mean, he's a pretty big deal. Also around this time in ancient Greece, much of Western medicine is being heavily improved already, such as the work of Herophilus, who rough name, bud, uh, that revolutionized anatomy by correctly theorizing that the brain is where human intellect lives, and also distinguishing the difference between veins and arteries. 
and also Arist Arist oh wow and also Aristratus oh man I'm bad at pronouncing things uh that work to map veins and nerves across the human body uh, the ancient Greeks also developed ligature a wide range of surgeries tracheotomies rudimentary anesthesia which is as terrifying as that sounds and also bone setting but Ancient Greece wasn't the only place revolutionizing. A ton of innovations in society and medical inventions are developing worldwide, including towards the treatment of mental illness as actual illness and not brain demons, uh, something we forget about later, uh, disease control and disease prevention. But going back to ancient Greece, we have the development of the humor system and the life of Galen of Pergamon. A medical legend in his own right between 129 and 216 AD. And to cover the humor system, it's a philosophy that all human health and illness is that all human health and illness is rooted in four fluids: blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and cum. No, sorry, black bile. And sickness meant that these things were out of balance, and he could tell what your balance was not only by your symptoms but also, like, reading your palm and what your natural state of being is. Are you a calm, even-tempered person as an introvert? Well, you're naturally phlegmatic. Are you moody, anxious, depressed introvert? Then you'd be me, but you're also melancholic, which is tied to black bile. Are you a talkative, carefree extrovert? Then you're sanguine. Are you an aggressive, impulsive extrovert? Then you're choleric, which is yellow bile. And beyond the system, Galen also performed a ton of experiments around blood in the heart and also advocated for medical dissections against the taboo of the time. And Galen's work serves as the foundation of much of medieval European medicine. And now we get to Rome. That, like the Greeks, because they have to steal everything, invented a lot. They designed a ton of surgical and gyne they designed a ton of surgical and gynecological instruments, which were probably initially some kind of weird sex thing. Also, the Roman doctor Dioscorides Dioscorides nuts uh, wrote De Materia Medica, which included over six hundred herbal cures for ailments and a ton of information about disease. Unfortunately, as the centuries continued and we got to around 400 AD, medicine went into a deep decline in the West, and the Romans didn't care as much about treatment and cared a lot more about addressing symptoms instead of fixing the issues, and up until their, and up until their collapse provided medical care to its people, but again, addressed symptoms, not fixing things, which is very Roman and also very American. You know, like there's a parallel there. But after the fall of Rome, seeing all those cool knowledgeists sitting around without any owners, both the Byzantines and Muslims took up preserving the knowledge of the ancient Greeks and all the shit that they managed to catalog. And these two groups also took to building off of each other's works and developed a system of hospitals and even medical triage. However, towards the late... Oh, boy. However, towards the late Umayyad Caliphate, being around the mid-1700s, a desire for expansion and conquest overtook the focus on medicine, you know, with the belief that God would provide cures for all disease kind of making medicine feel obsolete. 
luckily for medicine, by 750, the Abbasid Caliphate overthrew them. And the Abbasid made up for lost time, rapidly developing Islamic medicine and made mass translation efforts of Greek medical texts. And this forced doctors to begin implementing and adapting these ancient ideas and testing the theories of ancient medicine. And they were also heavily influenced by and influenced Indian, Persian, Chinese, and other medical practices. And all of this resulted in the development of what would essentially become modern hospitals, which was then copied the world over. Of course, being terrified of Muslims, as white people often are, the Europeans refused to be outclassed. So by the 9th century, dedicated medical schools began to open up in Europe, and universities dedicated themselves to training medical professionals. But even as Europeans were doing this, the Islamic world brought us two very important figures. Muhammad ibn Zakariah al-Razi and Ibn Sina. Both people we talked about in the science episode. Uh, Muhammad, in addition to helping to develop a more modern form of the scientific method, worked to distinguish diseases, most notably smallpox and measles. You know, two diseases that create infectious red bumps. And Ibn Sina who is known as the father of medicine, wrote the Canon of Medicine, which became the standard text to use across both Islam and Christendom. But, you know, let's not get too up our own ass about human medical accomplishments, because very much like nature is beginning to do now, the natural world decided to humble humanity in the 13th century with the Black Plague. Starting in Asia with the conquest of the Mongols, the disease followed trading ships to Italy, where it then spread across Europe and the Middle East, like the newest TikTok trend, and killed a third of all people living in those areas, like the newest TikTok trend. And obviously, this forced the question of public health and well-being into the spotlight, and introduced concepts like quarantine and passports. But a lot of the work done to help the sick were occupations like grave diggers that would transport corpses away in carts, religious groups who were religious, so they were actually helpful at this time, actual doctors that took the Hippocratic Oath and became plague doctors, and uneducated, unoathed plague doctors. Yep, you did not need a practicing license. You could just dress up like a crow with a leather kink and start telling people to strap a chicken to their thigh to prevent disease. Which was, yes, an actual cure at the time. The idea being that the disease would see two options. One of God's chosen people, a fucking chicken, and would decide, fuck it, I'm going into the chicken. But after the plague, in addition to a lot of changes in labor and the development of mercantilism, came to a new effort towards medicine. Into the Renaissance, a major effort emerged to translate medical texts into Latin, because that was the language of science at the time. Around the same time, Catholic women began to work as nurses and other healthcare providers. And why was that? Well, because the idea of Catholics at the time was that doing good works and God's will on earth would mean you get a go-to-heaven-free card. So early nurses began to look a lot like nuns, because by and large, I mean, they were really the same thing. The Protestants, however, being the Catholic contrarians they are, uh, apparently the train also hates Catholics, fought against this and closed hospitals, nunneries, and nursing facilities like the digital age closed blockbusters. Now, if you see a problem with closing every fucking hospital and nursing facility, 
you were thinking way far ahead of the largely Protestant English. Those fucking crayon munchers. So, retrospectively, England reopened a number of hospitals, but forced women to be nurses rather than nuns. Although they didn't really change the uniform that much. Uh, which is why the traditional nurse uniform looks a lot like nun robes in a way. Holy shit, train, shut the fuck up. But back to medical advances in 1628 with the publishing of William Harvey's Exercatio Anatomica de Motus Cordis et Sanguinis en Animalibus, which, if I pronounce that correctly, I might have summoned a demon, uh, correctly describes how and why blood flows. Fuck, that was not worth that effort for that one line. Anyways, I, uh, what the fuck ever. Uh, in 1870, uh, not fucking 1877. Jesus Christ! In 1677, Antony von Leeuwenhoek uh, creates the first microscope and finds microorganisms, calling them animalcules. Which think about that shit. We've known about microorganisms since the late 1600s. That blew my fucking mind to learn. But after this, treatment of illnesses, diseases, and injuries moves away from the spiritual and religious realms and more and more into the realm of science. And the 19th and 20th century is also when we enter the heroic age of medicine, when doctors are seen as almost holy crusaders against disease and unhealthiness, and were not only incapable of spreading it, but had to always, regardless of the harm or cost of the patient, save their life and treat their ills. Let me tell you, that's really going to fuck up the whole 19th century. However, in the 1830s, we also have more leaps in microorganism research, beginning with Agnostino Bassi tracing a disease of silkworms, fucking random, isn't it, Uh, to a microorganism. And this also includes, during this period, Theodore Schwann finding out that yeast played a major role in alcohol fermentation. In 1836, too, another Theodore, this time Fliedner, finds the founds the very first nursing school in Kaiserswerth. Which, I mean, if you didn't know that's Germany, what the fuck is wrong with you? That's the most German name of a town I've ever heard, besides Berlin. And with these developments, a man named Ignaz Selamwies... Okay, I'm going to apologize for all my pronunciations. For some fucking reason, the last, like, two weeks, I've not been able to pronounce a fucking thing. Uh, but he helped to reduce the death rate in childbirth significantly in 1847. And what magical cure did he do? Oh, he washed his goddamn hands. You know, doctors attending a birth and touching a woman right in the pussy should not have grody fingers from poking around a man's gangrenous asshole. And doctors hated him for this. And not because they wanted women to die or because they wanted to sell more boner pills, but because of the implication that doctors could spread disease. Yeah. Oh, and also a lot of people still follow miasma theory, the idea that disease is caused by bad smells. So if, you know, Dr. Butthole Fingers doesn't smell bad, he can't get you sick. And for another development that we use nowadays, but that people at the time thought was icky and cringe, Jon Snow... Not that one. In 1849, develop statistical methodology to track disease sources. 
Why? Well, because London was having yet another cholera outbreak, you know, as you do about three times a year, and discovered that the source was a water pump on Broad Street. And once it, and once it was removed, the outbreak decreased noticeably. However, at the time, a lot of other doctors were kind of meh about the whole thing. But related to medical logistics and statistics during the Crimean War, I don't know which one at this point, Florence Nightingale, who I no joke thought was an actress until I was about 17 years old, pioneers medical statistics by using patient data and outcomes to identify hospital efficiency and problems, which, after the war, causes major reforms across the world for hospitals. In 1860, the scientists Pasteur and Davine both independently discovered new pathogens. And yes, it's that Davine, the one that created Davinization. Sorry, that's always a hard one to pronounce. Anyways, pasteurized milk finds out that bacteria can ferment butric acid, one of your stomach acids, and that can make you really fucking sick. And Devane discovered motherfucking anthrax while looking at sheep. Not, not fucking them, like most French people. Which, hey, that's a step in the right direction. In the same year, Florence Nightingale founds the Nightingale Training School which creates a generation of nurses that not only practice proper hygiene, but also give you much better care. Which, I mean, that's not super hard to do. It's a great advancement, but I mean, it wasn't super hard to do, since around that time, nursing care was a vial of morphine handed to you from shit and blood-smeared hands, and a hard smack in the balls with a crucifix. And, like most nursing at the time, this generation of nurses was also largely upper-middle-class or lower-upper-class women, since nursing was seen as, like, the noble profession for women of the day. You know, it's like, uh, nowadays, a lot of women sell real estate. Five years later, continuing the theme of hygiene, Joseph Lister, yes, that one, introduces antisepsis to wound treatment procedures. And now we're introduced to the big boy of the late 1800s, and don't fucking laugh, his name is Robert Cock. Give you a minute to laugh while saying Bobby Cock over and over again like I did. Okay, you good? Okay, good. So good old Bobby Bobbert Longcock, the father of bacteriology, first starts his study of the ecology and disease-causing capacities of bacteria in the 1870s. And him and his team cause massive breakthroughs in germ theory, discover tuberculosis bacteria, and also map out the bacterial biomes of wounds, which are all very important. And Cox's career clashes with Pasteur's in 1883, when both make a trip to Alexandria. Why? Well, because there's a massive fucking outbreak of cholera, and both scientists go to discover the pathogen that caused it and help cure it. Unfortunately for Pasteur, Koch won. And drunk with power, Koch takes aim at another scientist today, Pettenkoffer, who still believed in miasma theory. And their disciples would take it to the streets like doctors and grim reapers do in the modern day. Except with books and debates and other lame science shit we've talked about before. However, Pasteur takes his loss in stride, just happy the disease was taken care of, and founds the Pasteur Institute, the first biomedical institute ever by 1888, along with developing a rabies vaccine. Meanwhile, for Koch, a cholera epidemic in Hamburg, Germany, 
fucking wrecks Pettenkoffer's theories socks off to end to address the disease, the German government turns to Koch's theory of bacteriology as the basis of public health. And then Koch received a Nobel Prize in 1905. You have no idea how hard it was not to laugh all the way through that. Uh, and jumping forward a bit, we now have the influenza pandemic, called the Spanish Flu from 1918 to 1920. Oh, also, you want to know why it's called the Spanish Flu? Because Spain was the only country that recognized that this was a fucking problem. Because it started during the end of World War I, and the rest of the world really did not want to drop morale even further, so Spain was blamed for spreading it. When in reality, all evidence points to it coming from Kansas. And the Kansas flu killed about 50 million deaths worldwide, including almost completely annihilating several American tribes and taking their culture with it. Which, uh, and goddamn, that really does sound American. Eight years later, Alexander Fleming discovers penicillin. How, you ask? Well, there was an improperly prepared petri dish that had some mold in it while he was studying bacteria. As he checked on his bacteria, he realized, oh fuck, that mold is eating its ass. And while his discovery would later save potentially billions of lives, it wasn't initially used until 1943 during World War II. And while World War II is full of medical advances in wound care, anatomy and biology, and disease prevention, that's such a long fucking story that we do not have time for. And also, I don't know about you, but I'd rather not spend the next three and a half days talking about giving bubonic plague to prisoners of war and open heart surgery done on innocent civilians without anesthesia or permission or intentionally blinding people but just remember that a great amount of our understanding of how the human body works is built on World War II era war crimes and and pardoning literal fucking Nazis. Yikes. But in combination of wanting to foster an international community, the motherfucking of all of Europe, Asia, and Africa, and also realizing that now we're able to travel to each other in days rather than years, diseases are going global, the World Health Organization is founded in 1948. Also ignore the fact that America and Russia are hitting each other with steel chairs in the background. Um, and beginning in that year and to 1953, a major medical taboo is broken by discussing and studying the mechanics and psychology of human sexuality in the Kinsey reports on human sexual behavior. Nice. But related to that, by 1960, we have the invention of the birth control pill, which revolutionizes sexual liberation. But also revolutionized is surgery, as in 1954, organ transplants are developed and proven to be possible and successful, with the proof of concept using the, using the cockroach of the human organs, the kidney. Now, with all these medical advances, you'd think that science and medicine share the same history, right? Nope. Not until 1990 was evidence-based medicine finally common in medical literature. You heard me right. Medicine didn't use the same language as science until 19-fucking-90. But into the 21st century, because of cultural developments and technological advances, uh, personalized medicine became more and more common. And why? Well, because the internet allows for a vast network of information on individuals and better and better inner doctor communication. 
Also, with things like genetic sequencing, gene mapping and therapy, stem cells, imaging technology, advanced biochemistry, and non-intrusive surgeries have all allowed for fine-tuned treatment plans. But let's hop over to the American side of the timeline, and holy shit, this is very long. This is like some of my earlier episodes. Okay, so in the 1700s, medicine in the future U.S. was uh, pretty rudimentary, let's call it. Because most of the people that came over, came over because they didn't have the money to survive in Europe. And doctors, for the most part, weren't included in that, because a lot of doctors at the time were wealthy. So most people relied on folk medicine, generational cures, and whatever the local Native Americans were nice enough to help us with. Also, that is why I don't think anyone has the ability to see the future, because if they did, I don't think they'd help. And a lot of this was actually put into women. However, because of all of this, um, child mortality, when you're exceptionally vulnerable to disease, illness, and injury, as well as just dying during childbirth for both mothers and newborns, was skyrocketing. Now, because of that fact, and also because of the Revolutionary War, and the healthy soldiers, and a number of diseases from across the entire fucking planet mingling into one place, the future U.S. was actually one of the earliest adopters of things like inoculations, and really, really caught up to Europe in medicine very fast. Uh, early on, 1735 to be exact, we'd also adopt medical societies, but Boston found the American Medical Society. And by 1750, we had the first hospital in Philadelphia. Both of these concentrated doctors and made them easier to find. And then 1765, the Medical College of Philadelphia is founded, and two years later, King's College opens as a medical department, both of which we talked about in the college episode. And in 1770, the first American MD was given. And I mean, medicine from that point stayed fairly similar, with the American Medical Association being founded in 1849. And if that date doesn't tickle the back of your brain, because you know American history... Oh boy, the Civil War is on the fucking horizon. And during the Civil War, disease and illness was insanely common. Combined with cramped conditions and brutal, dirty fighting, living in tents and in vastly different environments than what you're used to, a lot of soldiers suffered and died simply because there weren't enough doctors and there weren't enough accessible doctors. Especially for the Confederacy. But because of the logistical need, the Union built a shitfuck of hospitals everywhere and found both the U.S. Army Medical and the U.S. Sanitary Commission, giving them both a good amount of funding and good equipment, and also funds a ton of new healthcare agencies across the entire country. And also, this was the heroic age of medicine, with also very unsanitary conditions and weapons designed to motherfuck human bodies in ways that we've never seen before, a lot of people died during the Civil War because doctors were basically doing anything that they thought would help, including experimental and invasive surgeries, amputations, and intentional overdosing of medications, oftentimes without clean tools, anesthesia, or input from the patient. Yeah, fucking awful. And during the war, we also had the first floating hospitals during the brutal and bloody Battle of Shiloh, creating some of the first shipbound triage, which America has used a lot of in future wars. 
and after the war in 1886, the Hospital Corps is founded, as well as the Surgeon General's Office, to sort, keep, and use the data and notes collected from the war. And a lot of this is still used even today, which is actually pretty cool if you think about it. And in 1889, and in 1899, the AMA, the fucking bastard, you'll, you'll see spike in both power and memberships because of the war, with half of all American physicians becoming members. In the same year, insurance begins as private funds to pay for the fee-for-service medical system of the day arise. And a lot of these funds were backed by companies, which were fought for by unions and provided, co and provided by companies because of their worries about losing employees to otherwise treatable diseases or the employees just uh, or the unions just straight up stripping employees out of them. And if you think this is, you know, out of the kindness of your heart, it's literally just because hiring people is a lot more expensive. Now, moving on to the era between 1900 and 1909. During this time, surgeries become more and more common, and doctors don't need to provide free service to hospital patients anymore. However, during this time as well, while Europe begins to develop sickness insurance, in the U.S., we argue over it because we're goddamn Americans. And we fought about it because it threatened the power of unions, the power of corporations, and the power of the AMA, which had organized in 1901 and had 70,000 doctors by 1910. Speaking of the 1910s, the American Association for Labor Legislation organizes, championing social insurance, which includes health insurance. And despite the improving conditions of hospitals, general improvements to cleanliness and antisepsis and pain management, hospital visits become exponentially more expensive. But doctors and special interest groups oppose public health insurance. Why? Well, because one of the bills proposed that would award sick pay, maternity benefits and leave, and a 50 fucking dollar death benefit with a bill split between states, employees, and employers could undermine the purpose of insurance agencies, and also, doctors weren't sure whether they would fit into the payment program. Honestly, sounds like an excuse, because, like, there is none. You're receiving the money. That's your role. Just take the fucking money and do the goddamn thing you were paid to do. <sighs> Anyways, uh, this pushback delays the AALL, until the collapse of the Progressive Party and socialized medicine debates during World War I, during which the War Risk Insurance Act is introduced, covering the costs of the wounded and killed soldiers and also paying out dependents. And, uh, yeah, you heard that right. You can get drafted, shot in the fucking leg, and then come home with hospital bills. Healthcare has always been a nightmare, and we've always been getting fucked right in the anal cavity. And into the 1920s, medical professionals become more and more culturally important and intertwined with insurance companies, and the price soars as politicians become complacent to addressing issues around healthcare and kind of just letting whatever happen. And added to this, the extremely expensive rural facilities are completely ineffective. And given this increase in costs, Insurance companies and private corporations start making fuck-me-eyes at each other from across the room as the opportunity to fuck over workers gets them all hot and horny for each other. Insurance companies get money as long as workers can't afford the premiums, 
and corporations get to essentially enslave their workers by tying their access to a fucking doctor to working for them. In 1923, we have the origins of Blue Cross Blue Shield as Baylor Hospitals in Texas create a program in conjunction with public schools to give teachers health care in the form of a monthly fee. And then the Depression hits. And because of the Depression, most people shift their rage focus away from health care and more towards unemployment and elder care. And despite pushes for socialized medicine from FDR, the entire economy and American politics are so much of a shit show and so many people pick apart any planned bills and also fight over it that he's basically forced to give up. In addition, the AM fucking A opposes the 1935 Social Security Act until they drop the part about giving people free health care. You remember that oath that your members take to do no harm and to help the sick, injured, and infirm? No? I'm not surprised. And despite this fighting, we get dragged into another goddamn world war that distracts us from discussing healthcare. Uh, we also get Kaiser Permanente from the war as Dr. Garfield and the industrialist Henry Kaiser, who had worked together before, set up a program to ensure 30,000 employees working on warships for the war effort in dockyards to keep them working. And with the U.S. economy dealing with rampant inflation, the 1942 Stabilization Act passes to control it by limiting pay. So companies need a new way to lure in slave I mean workers, so they start to offer employer-sponsored health care until that becomes kind of the norm. In the next year, trying to fix medicine, the Wagner-Murray-Dingle bill, that's a real bill, is introduced to fund universal health care through a payroll tax, which is killed by the motherfucking AMA again. And then when Truman took office, he tried to give all Americans affordable health care as FDR was trying to do. But now, because of the fucking Cold War going on and the goddamn AMA again, it didn't happen. And the AMA actually introduced their own, which conspicuously included private insurance. And if I could, I'd resurrect Hippocrates and show him how they're perverting his oath and let him whoop their ass himself. Nothing like pledging to be a good person and doing everything in your power to shit all over your oath. I, I wish there were, like, karmic punishments for their actions. Anyways, in 1946, the whole Burton program passes to give hospitals and care facilities funds to modernize and also require them to give people who couldn't pay treatment. And while this decayed in 1997, a lot of hospitals are still required to give people treatment or lose funding. You know, like the oath fucking says to do. Why do you need to be punished to do the thing that you promised to do? Oh my god. Okay, anyways, following up in the 1950s, hospital care costs fucking double in less than a decade. Hundreds of proposals are created and all of them get shot down because insurance agencies and apparently the AMA are the biggest blights on the well-being of Americans since the first white person stepped ashore and said hi to a Native American. Now on a good note, uh, Jonas Salk invents the polio vaccine with his team in 1952 and is approved for use in 55. And then we get to the 1960s 
with 69% nice of doctors becoming specialists and 5% of the GDP is made up of healthcare, which is the first time that we start actually tracking this. And this is also when healthcare shortages occur for the first time and we have just about 700 insurance companies that are fucking loving how expensive everything is and begging its fuck slave, the AMA, to keep going. And JFK, while he was president, proposed the bill to help old people afford health care. You know, something that's very nice and absolutely has no detractors. And guess what the AMA did? Yep, shot it the fuck down alongside Congress. What the fuck even is an oath? Oh, also, bad phrasing. But in 1965, the Social Security Act passed again, laying the groundwork for Medicare and Medicaid. In 1971, uh, during the presidency of Richard motherfucking Nixon, Edward Kennedy proposes a single-payer medical system. Nixon shoots it down, but surprisingly, in a very non-Nixon move, he proposes a counteroffer, requiring all employers to provide health care, getting government subsidies in return. And why did he do this? Well, because his family had been fucked by the American medical system his entire childhood, and did something impossible for Nixon. Have empathy. But once Watergate broke, the entire thing died. And the years after this, 72 and 73, the Social Security Amendment and Health Maintenance Organization Act passes. The SSA 72 changes their requirements and tests to receive retirement and disability payments, and also increases the benefit cap. Meanwhile, the HMOA was a proof of concept for maybe, perhaps, if the, if the AMA and insurance was okay with it, we could maybe have a federal healthcare system. Fucking crazy, I know. In the 1980s, corporations realized the hospitals are a good way to squeeze the proletariat for all they're worth and begin to consolidate and purchase hospitals, creating modern provider networks which caused them to become for-profit. And as if this wasn't bad enough, Ronald goddamn Reagan slashes healthcare regulations like emotionally unstable Tony's mattress outlet, oh dear God, why did I open a furniture store, grand re-re-re-re-re-re-reopening sale. And in 1986, he publishes the Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act, also called motherfucking Cobra, into law. Now, besides the name, that sounds like someone really was stretching the meaning of those words to make it sound as evil as possible, what was this? Well, amongst other things, allowing employers, allowing employees to keep their employment-based healthcare program, which is nice, you know, totally no ulterior, if they pay the full premium. Which I gotta say, that might be the most Reagan thing ever. Create something with a clearly evil name, get everyone on board with that good old uncle you shouldn't leave your kids alone with charisma, and then backhand the fuck out of them with something that lives up to the evil of the name and have them thank you for it. Oh, and hey, 1990 rolls around, and wouldn't you know it, but now our expenditure of GDP is 12.1%, 3.2% higher in a decade. Now, you might think that's not a big deal, but that's all of the economic action in the U.S. for a fucking year. Also, employers start trying to cut healthcare costs by both requiring you to see your primary care doctor before you see the specialists you need, and also insurance companies meddle more with medicine, which isn't their fucking job. And in 1993, in order to address the rising costs and attempts to roll back your goddamn rights, 
Bill Overblown Clinton proposes the Health Security Act, combining the Nixon and FDR plan, the only context where those words don't cancel each other out, which combines universal coverage and private insurance. Sounds like a good compromise, right? Well, Congress didn't think so because they said it was too complicated. Pause for effect. And none of them wanted to risk pissing off the people signing their paychecks. <laughs> the American people. Oh, my sweet summer child. No, the insurance companies. However, in 96, Clinton was able to pass HIPAA, which, as you know, gives you the right to medical privacy. That's right. Not until 1996 did you have medical privacy. Holy shit. And he also expanded CHIP the next year, allowing Medicaid to be used by uninsured children up to 19 years old who otherwise wouldn't qualify. And now we're getting into the wet and wild 2000s that is totally not a turning point for the worst in American politics. Beginning in 2003, Medicare Part D was passed by George Steele W. Beams Bush to cover prescription drugs. And for the next seven years, healthcare stopped being a priority. I mean, who gives a shit about your health? You have people in the Middle East to be racist at, and also an economic collapse to worry about. But in 2010, Obama champions the Affordable Care Act, something that it seems like everyone was pissy about until it actually passed. And its design was to entirely reform the healthcare system, including enforcing affordable healthcare and also expanding Medicaid. And to ease everyone of this thick socialist dildo, the plan was to integrate a piecemeal to give insurance companies and consumers time to adapt. And, uh... Yeah, that worked out well, right? Well, in 2013, the ACA was first rolled out onto the marketplace, and the entire website was a buggy, overcrowded, poorly designed piece of utter horseshit that couldn't handle the traffic it was getting. Also, a lot of southern states, because of the South loves anything, is bending poor people over and fucking them to death while telling them that they like it, challenged it every step of the way. And also, people kept taking it to the Supreme Court with accusations of it being socialist, like that's against the Constitution, and also designed to fail, like that's against the Constitution. Uh, Congress also voted over 50 times to kill it, and insurance companies really fought against it. And why? Well, because it covered pre-existing conditions, cheapened insurance, made maternal and prenatal care not a pre-existing condition. Yeah, you heard that right, they could deny you if you're pregnant. And also dropped the uninsurance rate to 8.5%. And after we got used to it, we realized that, you know, actually, this feels pretty good, not being worried about our insurance and, you know, being able to see the fucking doctor to check out that mole in our ass without going into debt. Oh, and then Trump happened. And in 2017, he immediately sets to work dismantling the ACA. At first, by removing the requirement to have insurance. In response, premiums skyrocket as people drop their insurance. Meaning, everyone else is only paying a fuck ton more. And then in 2018, he added clauses to the ACA requiring you to have a job or go to college to keep your insurance. Fucking great. And all of this, as we've seen over and over again with other things, happens at the worst possible moment. Because then COVID happens. And in addition to the ACA being dismantled, other parts of the healthcare system was rotting because corporations only care about profit and the AMA only cares about servicing Papa Insurance's micropenis, so hospitals have been getting gutted for decades while costs increase. And holy shit, does COVID expose all of that? Healthcare workers were often stranded without help, hospitals were overcrowded and undersupplied, people were paying out the ass to make sure their grandpa didn't die in horrific, unimaginable pain, 
companies were trying to motherfuck everyone in the entire hospital system, and Big Pharma continued to raise the prices of medications while we praised them for creating vaccines. And all of this sparks the entire healthcare debate all over again, but this time amplifies a mistrust of doctors that we've had probably since the beginning of America. Uh, fuck me, that... This sucks balls. So let's... Let's just talk about the current state of healthcare. Oh, you thought we were done sucking balls? Well, there's another set coming in, and they are sweatier and stinkier than the last ones. And, you know, as always, we're going to start with some data. So, firstly, we have life expectancy. Worldwide, the average is about 73.4 years old. And the top five countries are Hong Kong at 85.83, Macau at 85.51, Japan at 84.95, Switzerland at 84.83, and Singapore at 84.27 years old. And these are all either first world countries or at least are very rich. And, I mean, we're also pretty rich, right? I mean, so we'd be in the neighborhood. 47. America is 47th with a life expectancy of 79.74 years. Which, to be fair to America, is still higher than average, but you'll see why that's, uh, eh. Okay, so now we're going to look at deaths. So let's take a look at preventable causes per 100,000 people. The worldwide average is 133. Israel has the lowest at 72, Switzerland at 85, Japan at 87, Italy at 88, and Spain at 93. And where's the U.S.? 32nd. At 175 preventable deaths per 100,000 people, or 580,000 825 people per year dying when they didn't have to. I mean, I will say, though, it's pretty fucked up that's happening in the first place. Sorry, my socialist is showing. Speaking of which, infant mortality. Because the fact that this happens sometimes because you can't afford medical and we act like it's okay is reason 9,781 that I'm a socialist. And is also the first one that isn't selfish. So, worldwide, the average is 27.334 per 1,000 live births, and the lowest is Iceland at 1.54, followed by San Marino at 1.56, Estonia at 1.65, Slovenia at 1.76, and fifth is Norway at 1.79. And the U.S., we're 50th at 5.44 deaths per live birth. Alright, alright. Let's go a little less dark. Well, a lot less dark. How many physicians are there per 1,000 people? In Austria, it's 5.35. Norway, it's 5.09. Spain, it's 4.85. Lithuania, at 4.48. And Germany, it's 4.47. Gotta pump up the number a little bit to beat out Lithuania. And America is 61st in the world at 2.6 physicians per 1,000 people. Now keep in mind with all of these, 
that a lot of physicians are specialists, and also allopathic medicine represents most of the physicians represented here. So the lack of doctors is really felt. If you want something more general, we need to look at nurses. And not in that way, pervert. So per 1,000 people, Switzerland has 18.37 nurses, Norway has 18.01, Iceland has 15.63, Australia has 12.26, and Japan has 12.1. And for once, the U.S. isn't that far off, being in ninth place with 11.7 nurses per 1,000 people. But in what field does the U.S. stand on the podium for? cost. And let's look at that. So the average worldwide per capita spending on healthcare worldwide works out to about $1,229.55 USD. And for those of you who don't know what per capita means, that is per person. And taking the number one spot, because we are number fucking one, is the USA at $11,702.41 per person. Second is Switzerland at $10,309.76 and Norway at $7,704.44, which sounds comparable, but listen back to where they sit on the other listings, because, because they are in the top five of most of them. They have significantly better healthcare statistics than us at a lower cost per person. So it's not even like you can make the excuse of it's not taking the population into account. It absolutely is. And also we have the percentage of GDP, which worldwide averages about 7.04%. So number one is Tuvalu at 21.54%, which... Please, for the love of fuck, don't try to dethrone them, America. I know it pisses you off when other countries are factually number one, despite the propaganda, but please, for fuck's sake, don't. We are on the podium, however, at somewhere between 18.3 and 18.82%. And either number three or number two is Palau at 18.39%. And the reason why there's such a big range for the U.S. is that I found numbers all the way along that that spectrum, um, some of them, most of them were 18.3, there were some government websites that were 18.82, and then also, I, you know, I use Wikipedia, because I'm not a fucking, like, this is not my full-time job yet, but on Wikipedia, it was 18.3, later in the article, it's 18.82, so it, it's somewhere between those. But, anyways, the highest spenders worldwide are two Micronesia countries with very small populations, and the self-professed economic and military powerhouse of the entire fucking Western world. And the quality of healthcare is also comparable. Because I did check uh, Tuvalu and Palau on those same lists that I used. They are close to us in, in the placements. Okay, so now let's talk about the glaring issues with the American medical system. Uh, with the biggest of them being America's medical debt. 
which comes out to $195 billion, with at least 1 in 10 adults having at least $250 in debt. And why is that second number so low? Well, because $250 fucking dollars for most Americans is the difference between being in debt and stress and barely surviving and being okay. $250 fucking dollars. Reason 447 why I'm a socialist. And as of 2019, single-person households with private insurance can't pay off their medical debts, with 32% of them unable to pay $2,000, and 51% can't pay $6,000. Yet, just over half of all single people with medical debt and insurance, $6,000 would entirely wipe it out for them. Yeah, 448. Also, with these massive costs before COVID hit, there were estimations that would hit 19.7% of GDP for medical costs in about 2030. And it's three years later, and we're already almost to 19%. And why is this cost so high? Because it benefits the providers and insurance companies to lie to you and Daddy Sam that they are really, really in need of the money. And then point to the cool medical lasers and heart surgery charts and also all those tasty pills your mom won't let you eat out of the junk drawer and ask, hey, do you want to figure out how this works? As if they understand how it works and then we shut up and fuck off instead of like talking to people who actually know what they're talking about, like doctors. <sighs> I, I like living here because it's a first world country and like I get a lot of freedoms and stuff and like I can talk shit as much as I want, but holy Fucker, we bad at things. Okay, on to the next issue. Okay, now on to the next issue. Preventable medical errors. So about 10% of all deaths in the U.S. can be attributed to medical errors, which makes it the third highest cause of death is about 346,000 deaths per year. Now, the second issue, which is closely tied to this one, is a poor amenable death rate. And amenable death rate measures the amount of premature death that is preventable and treatable when we get the appropriate care. And you know the raw numbers for that. But we are at 88.7 points on the scale, which is 5 points worse than the average of all the countries measured, which is most, like, the... which is mostly first world western countries. So, what's the reason for these? Well, and this is tied to other issues beginning with a lack of transparency. There is a rampant healthcare fraud with the provider companies, the ones that literally own your doctor's boyholes, upcoding procedures, i.e. faking the procedure as a more expensive one, to get more money from the insurance company. Insurance companies then raise premiums to squeeze customers more. All of which is outside the control, consent, or sometimes even notice of the doctors. And the thing is, insurance companies know this happens, and they're okay with it, because it keeps you stuck in your insurance plan. Because you would have to pay a higher premium to get new insurance. So they have you stuck, especially if it's an employer-sponsored program. Speaking of doctors and a lack of transparency, it's also very hard to find good doctors. With 
no transparency on the credentials of doctors, their performance, or their accomplishments without doing massive amounts of research, you can't really reliably trust you find a good doctor that's actually going to help you. And the only easy scores you'll find are things like staff friendliness, stars on essentially Dr. Yelp, wait time, and online reviews of the doctor's office. So no way to tell you how good the doctor is. Now, we also have a lack of insurance because insurance is linked to your employment and insurance is expensive as fuck. And also the crucial part of the ACA where you can get affordable insurance, you're shit out of luck if your job is shit and doesn't offer insurance, you're unemployed, or you work a fucking awful job but you need the medical care. You're essentially stuck there. Period. And because insurance is for profit and have you by the balls, your insurance probably isn't good anyways. It's just enough. Uh, this is, by the way, why people say uh, insurance is a scam. I know the average age of my listenership is much older than me. So the that's what my generation means when we say insurance is a scam, is that this system is a scam. Uh, and making it all worse, we have another medical shortage. We have an increasing demand for doctors and nurses as our population ages because baby boomers are starting to get to the end-of-life phase of their cycle and known as having babies because holy fuck is everything too expensive and we're all stressed out so we don't have enough people. Phone, I don't know where you are. You need to shut up. Okay. But also because of the cost of college, a lack of assurance you'll actually find work, the entire medical system going against the ethics of medicine, the shit shifts, a total lack of work-life balance, an entire generation not willing to compromise their morals, body, mind, soul, and time to collect a paycheck, even a big one, we don't have many people going into medicine anymore. On top of that, a lot of nurses and doctors that have become disillusioned are also beginning to retire or are moving more and more to providing care in free clinics and other things that you know, take the oath seriously that the AMA apparently thinks is a fucking suggestion rather than a rule, the AMA can rot in hell. Now, there are other causes as well. Because on top of this, doctors aren't evenly spread across the country and tend to congregate where people can pay. You know, because capitalism. There's no availability on nights and weekends. The entire system is inefficient and inflexible, and insurance agencies will only cover specific doctors, meaning even if doctors can, can accept patients, they can't find any because they're out of fucking network. And speaking of inefficiency, the medical care system is extremely inefficient. This is a combination of high levels of bureaucracy and just how the system works. Basically what happens is that you call in the doctor to look at the weird mole on your ass, and you find an available date, which might be three months out. And then you go to the doctor's office and see the doctor, who is concerned about the level of anxiety that you have, and so says that you need pills, and also assures you that it's normal to have a mole that shape on your asshole. So the doctor then needs to talk to the provider company, saying that you need the anxiety pills. And then the provider, assuming that they say, okay, without trying to fuck you and your doctor in the face, which is unlikely, will then talk to the insurance company, who will then tell your provider that actually the pills you need are the budget pills they're going to charge you full price for 
for, you know, some dodgy, totally not black market methamphetamines. And your provider, not knowing or even giving a shit any better, tells your doctor that. And if you have a good doctor, they'll say, uh, fuck no. And then tell your provider to eat his cock and balls. And then the provider tells the insurance company they said no. So the insurance finally agrees to pay, but the provider charges them for double the prescription, which means now it takes six months to finalize because it is a controlled substance. So then you go to the pharmacy because your provider told them to get the pills ready at the beginning, which then takes far too fucking long despite waiting a week to even go to the pharmacy in the first place. And then six months later, you get a bill for the pills you already took. That's about $9,000 goddamn dollars because your insurance company decided they didn't like paying for them and decided, nah, about a month ago. Now imagine if instead of anxiety medication, which holy shit, if that didn't give you anxiety, uh, you're the strongest person ever. Imagine if you had cancer and you had a year to get a life-saving surgery. All of that shit is happening to the 10th degree. Yeah. So let's shift over to talking about actual solutions. Okay. So we're actually going to start with how to fix things. Because my blood pressure is up and I'm getting the vapors. Uh, also, because after the depressing ending of the last section, I, for one, need to feel something that isn't hopelessness. Uh, even though this probably isn't going to help. And we're also going to ignore transferring to a single-payer system. And the reason is because going by the history of America, that's never going to happen. So the first thing to do is reduce the cost by increasing transparency. So by requiring the patient, doctor, insurance, and provider to all look at the exact same notes rather than letting the provider and insurance company lie to everyone, then we can actually call them out. Add on to that, it drives down the cost because now these companies need to, you know, compete and fight with each other instead of working together to motherfuck their customer base right in the skull. And by having all the facts, patients can actually get things fixed instead of jumping between doctors, they're just meh at their job, which robs providers of continuing to make money off of your suffering, which is good. Fuck the providers. Now, if you don't like that, you're really going to hate this one, because we combine the last one with improving tech, prices will continue to drop. Why? Well, because medical procedures, as technology advances, don't get more expensive. They actually get cheaper, easier, and faster with a higher success rate meaning that you get your shit figured out easier, and then when your provider tries to confuse you into working with them, your doctor can advocate for you, you know, like their oath should make them do, to say, well, actually, no, this is cheaper, easier, and safer, so we're doing that. One moment. Phone, how many times do I have to tell you to be quiet? Sorry, the government was trying to contact me. I'm wanted by the FBI. Uh, all right, next, standardizing insurance, which means requiring all insurance to function exactly the same and cover the exact same things. Don't worry, Mom, I'm not wanted by the FBI. Uh, this gives you a guarantee that no matter who you're with, you'll be able to get your medical care. 
And this might lower costs and give you more treatment options too, since the insurance companies need to find different ways to lure you in besides, you know, relying on them to not let you die. Related, we also have standardized protocols. Because in the US, we don't have standardized medical protocols in the same way other countries with comparable medical care do. Yeah, you heard that right. We don't standardize medical protocols and procedures. So by having fucking standards, we can guarantee better care and consistent care without worrying about suddenly having a much shittier doctor. Fuck it. Introduce a single-payer system. Fuck the insurance industry. The industry deserves to die. We need to murder it. And by having a single-payer system, we also force providers to actually be reasonable and play ball or lose all their fucking money like they fucking deserve. Join the AMA in hell for all I care. Okay, and let's let's go to public opinion before I, I start prematurely soapboxing. So, looking at politics, the left and right are actually really easy, and this is going to be extremely short because of it. On the left, healthcare isn't seen as a business. Instead, it's seen as a requirement to survive, meaning it's the government's job to ensure, in some way, that's provided. Now, leftists like me think it should be free, while liberals are more in the affordability region. On the right, on the other hand, healthcare is business and an enterprise, meaning they believe that healthcare can and should make money. You know, people who are dying get fucked. There's capitalists that need another Lamborghini. This is especially when it comes to lobbyists. They fucking love insurance lobbyists. Sorry, that's the government again. Now, let's ask normal people. So the first question, is the government responsible for health care? And 57% of people say yes, 40% say no. And to make a point, asking partisans massively changes this, with 88% of people on the left thinking so, and 28% of people on the right. Which, holy shit, against your own best interests, am I right? Now also, normal people think that health care is perfectly fine to be private, with 53% on board with private healthcare and 43% preferring public. And introducing left and right, 72% of lefties want public healthcare and 13% of righties do. Again, against their own self-interest, especially because a lot of them are getting old. And I, I feel the itch to start screaming coming, so let's go to the soapbox. Okay. What do I think? Well, it should be obvious. Because I'm fucking furious. Because the entire healthcare system seems to be determined to motherfuck everyone that isn't rich or an insurance company or provider company, i.e. rich, which also is immoral that you are getting rich off of other people's suffering. Even though you're saying that you are alleviating it, you're charging them out the ass for something that should be free in the fucking first place. Also, healthcare workers are getting fucked over because they're not only not getting paid as much as they could be, but are also routinely being overworked with poor work-life balance, ironically, poor health, and being guilted into working by bringing up their oaths and role in the world while the people telling them collect massive paychecks from human suffering ignore the oath that they supposedly took. Actually, you know what? I don't think the AMA took an oath at all. I think they're not doctors. Patients are fucked because everything takes too long and costs too much for service that no one is okay with the quality of, 
and they don't have a choice in the matter. Because what's the other option? Fucking die? And you're forced into the system and also forced to work shitty jobs. Because if you don't, you might lose your only way to afford healthcare. It's fucking ransom and everyone knows it, but no one can do anything because the people who aren't supposed to let this happen are getting paid to let it happen. You know what? Fuck it. Let's just get rid of all of them. Fuck it all. Fuck the healthcare system. Fuck politics. Fuck this fucking country getting its dick hard over the fact that people are dying from preventable diseases and going to massive debt because they're dying from an illness that's expensive. Fuck insurance. And the AMA. And you know what? Fuck. Yeah, I'm not going to cut loose like that. That's a bad idea because that's how I get put on a watch list again. But anyways, that's episode 15 on how fucked up the medical system is. I hope you at the very least learned something or got just as outraged as I am. Uh, I'm not sure if much of that, especially the end, was very enjoyable, but, you know. Uh, anyways, if you have opinions, advice on how to make this show better, hate letters, ghost written for medical insurance companies, fucky ways the medical industry has bent you over, and really anything else you want to tell me, make sure to email me at waytatpods at gmail.com. That's W-A-Y-T-A-T-B-O-D-S at gmail.com. Sorry, I am exhausted now. <laughs> that took a lot out of me. Uh, also, remember to check out my other podcasts, Waytat Nerd. I do basically the same thing, but with nerd topics like fantasy, sci-fi, role-playing games, etc. I hope you'll like the topics just as much. And also remember to follow me on Twitter at waytat underscore pods for more episode announcements. Alright, have a good night. Don't murder. Have fun. And remember, fuck the AMA. This has been Why Aren't You Talking About This? I've been your host, William. Good night. <laughs>